0: But I try, and I
1: try, and I try
0: Hello and, and welcome to Call to Action The go-to on. podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks We aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with It's like Pokemon Go with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Susan Coghill, A proper marketer getting travellers to track a trail to the land of kangaroos and kylie, Susan is currently CMO of Tourism Australia and a peddler of the power of creativity to build brands, drive business and shape culture. Recently, she's navigated tourism in Oz through tough times, made a nine-minute film while everyone else was making TikToks, and brought souvenir kangaroo Ruby to life in their top-performing Come and Say G'day campaign. Despite worrying that it might seem trite, research showed that people around the world still love a bouncing marsupial. Susan says... We did six months of research, and yes, the answer was a kangaroo. There's a reason we have a kangaroo as our logo. There's a reason that Qantas uses a kangaroo in its logo. I'm feeling very lucky, lucky, lucky to welcome to the show, Susan.
1: Oh, Giles, thank you for that warm, warm welcome, and thank you for having me here today. It's really great to be on the show.
0: Oh, no, the pleasure's entirely mine. Um, Susan, seven quick fires. Yes. Singapore or Sydney?
1: Oh Sydney, all the time.
0: Agency or client side?
1: Gosh, that's a hard one. Careful. Um, I've got. Um, I've got to say client side, but I'm always an agency girl at heart.
0: <laughs> long or short?
1: Oh, definitely long.
0: Vacation or staycation?
1: Oh, vacation.
0: These are too easy, right? <laughs> Chris Hemsworth or Kylie Minogue?
1: Oh, oh. Oh, Ugh, Kylie, Kylie! You've got to love Kylie.
0: Yeah, is the correct answer. Right, two more: Ruby Rose or Ruby Roo?
1: <laughs> Ruby Roo, Ruby the souvenir kangaroo. Absolutely, she's our she's our new mascot, and I love her.
0: Amazing. Uh, right, last one, and there's always at least one ridiculous one: Can lions or cans Crocs?
1: Oh, oh, oh! Can lions? I'm afraid of Crocs. <laughs>
0: Bye. Awesome. Amazing. Listen, Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We always ask every guest about their path to where they are now. So can you tell our listeners, what was your first ever job? And then what was your prop- first proper marketing slash brand job?
1: Sure, sure. My very first job ever when when I was when I was, I think, 15 years old working in Angelo's Pizza in Florissant, Missouri, where I grew up. And I think I lasted all of about two or three months uh, was the extent of my hospitality experience. Um, I uh, quickly found a job uh, after that working in a retirement home, answering phones a few nights a week for $5 an hour um, and found the best job ever because I would sit and talk to all the uh, all the older people in the in the home and kept them company in the evening and um, did my homework. So I think I'm I'm suited to those jobs where I'm interacting with people and I'm chatting and telling stories. Nice. How how long you, did you do that for? Oh, um, I did that oh, for I think a couple a couple of uh, years in high school before I went away to university in California. Yeah, that makes so much sense. There's I was reading a few years ago. I'm not
0: sure how common practice it is now, but I believe it was a company based in Holland. And they were somehow twinning retirement homes with student accommodation. Oh, uh, yes, to... I read
1: that. Eve. Yeah, it's
0: fantastic. It's absolutely it's fantastic. A, yeah, exactly. it's
1: a great idea. I mean, I you know, I think that, that sort of intergenerational experience, cross-pollination, I guess, of, of people of all ages is a, is a really great thing. And, yeah, I, look, I just love learning from their, their wisdom and their experience. Um, you know, look, in, in my personal life, I um, I lost my parents quite young. I lost my mother when I was a year and a half. And my father... Uh, passed away when I was 11 um, and I think um, and I, so I was raised by my by my older sisters who are amazing absolute absolute um, stars in their own right but I think going in and working in the old folks home you know the retirement home that I was in gave me a connection to an older generation that I didn't have in my own personal life growing up to be quite honest um, so yeah I, I got a lot out of that
0: yeah no doubt. Oh, wonderful I'm sure they did too and then, uh, what, then at what stage did you start thinking about your career beyond that you said you were at high school was that something that you you had a clear path for already in your head or was it something that you just kind of discovered a bit later
1: no look i i knew i wanted to go to university you know i i wanted to get uh i wanted to get my degree i wanted to work professionally i didn't really know what i wanted to do i mean i i think i had a, a whole range of aspirations when i was a kid you know i wanted to be an archaeologist for a long time which i'm pretty sure was inspired by, you know, by the movies of the time, by Some um, Indiana Jones. Films Indiana Jones. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, you know, I think for a while I thought I wanted to go to law school. And I think I thought about going into sports medicine at one point. I was a soccer player, a competitive soccer player um, in grade school, high school and university. Um, but, look, you know, I found my way into into advertising first, working in agencies because my sister worked in advertising agency, agencies in Los Angeles. Uh, and she encouraged me to look for opportunities. She thought, you know, my personality, my skill set, my personal interests would uh, be a good fit. And that's where I started. I got my first job in advertising an agency called GBF Air, uh, which was the West Coast outpost of NW Air, a very long standing agency. I don't know that it even exists anymore, but at the time it had been around for, I don't know, 100 years or something like that. And that's where I sort of uh, started learning the ropes of account management. Spent a couple of years there before I went to Team One. Um, Team One was the agency that was created by Saatchi and Saatchi for the Lexus brand when they launched the the luxury range of Lexus in America. Um, Although I did not work on Lexus, I worked on America West Airlines. So I think that's when I started my career, I suppose, in travel and tourism, really. America West was interesting because it was um, neither the cheap Southwest airline uh, type of service and it wasn't the expensive full service airline. So trying to carve out a niche sort of in the middle. Um, So I spent, uh, I think, three years or so working on uh, the airline there uh, before uh, some former T1 colleagues had gone to um, TBWA Chiat Day uh, at the time to work on the Apple account. And um, they recruited me, brought me over. uh, And this was in 1997, which totally dates me. And I appreciate that some of your listeners would not even be alive at that stage. But nonetheless, it was a real um, historical moment in the world of marketing and advertising uh, to be working on the Apple brand and um, at that time when Steve Jobs just went back to to Apple and you know we were on the cusp of launching the Think Different campaign. Um, you know, and not long after that, launching the iMac and really changing the world forever, both in terms of you know um, you know computers, um, but in terms of branding and advertising, et cetera. It was a pretty amazing time uh, to be at Shite Day.
0: It's, it's one of, was probably one of the most referenced campaigns, I think, oh, in most people, totally. regardless of whether they were alive in 97, <laughs> 97 or not. So, and, and I wonder because we, everybody has like a perception of why it was so fantastic. And we all know that that's so easy oh. to do retrospectively because you know, there's so much context and market orientation issues and things that just you, you can't suffer in hindsight. Yeah. And I wonder what it was like from your perspective. Yeah. uh, In terms of being so heavily involved, did it feel like it was going to be that significant at the
1: time? Yeah. Honestly, it really did. It was, it was a real, you could feel how important it was, how important that moment was. And you could feel that we were making history. I mean, and don't get me wrong, I was a junior burger. I was a little, I don't know, assistant account executive, I think. Yeah. Or account executive. I can't remember. Um, So I, I was. You know, I was young and green and impressionable, and it has certainly shaped the marketer that I have become. But you know, at that point in time, um, you know, as I said, Steve Jobs was just going, had just gone back to the business. He was on the cover of Time magazine, um, Newsweek magazine, which back then, obviously, all of this was huge, and they were proper printed uh, magazines that were, uh, you know, delivered to you know tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of houses around America at the time. He was just a real cultural icon, and you could feel you could feel that he was he, he was it was on a mission. You know, he was um, not going to let his baby fail. You know, and despite the fact, you know, I mean, everybody knows the story, right? That they were they you know the, the business was a mess, the supply chain was a mess, you know, the finances were a mess, etc. You know, and and that that Think Different campaign was so essential to rebuilding people's trust in the brand, you know, and keeping the faithful Apple believers on board until such time that they could start to ship new product but also it was just it was breathing new life into the apple brand um and to do it in such a wonderfully emotive way was incredible and it is interesting because as you say it was it was a campaign that is you know probably the most referenced across our industry um and i find that fascinating because there there's not many brands or businesses that can live up to that type of storytelling you know that beautiful manifesto type of of a campaign um you know, it takes a lot of guts, but it takes a certain type of, of business to be able to do that, you know? And I I, I still, um, you know, think that there's a lot of, there's probably a lot of executions, a lot of campaigns out there that try and live up to it, but don't, you know? yeah. Um, and just, you know, the importance of really knowing who your brand is and how you tell your story is incredibly important and not just trying to emulate what Apple has done, for example. But yeah, it, look, it was an incredible moment. Um, you know, it, it, um, I worked on the very last uh, uh, beige computer promotion as well. We had like a 12-page insert that was getting stuck into, again, a Time or Newsweek magazine uh, for the G3 Tower, I think it was. Um, and then my second week of work, I was nominated as the junior person who was, you know, dispensable, I guess, to to carry some work to Hawaii uh, to Steve, you know. Um, they I guess I was going to be a safe pair of hands while everybody else kept working back at home. So I get to his resort. I walk in the front door, and um, I kind of, you know, I'm—I don't know what I am. I'm 24 or 25 or something. I'm like, kind of, basically, whisper to the receptionist. I see Steve Jobs, you know, <laughs> and he comes around the corner, and his, and he looks at me, and he puts his arms out, and he's like, "You must be Susan. Come on, let's go look at the work." And then, you know, I'm like, "Okay," you know. So we we go out to the beach. Um, you know, we sit under a pavilion, and we lay out the mocked up, you know, 12 page insert or so, whatever it was. We start going through the work um, and he's asking my opinion on it. And again, here I am, this little junior burger, giving him my opinion on this stuff. and just thinking, what is happening right now? How did I get here? You know, <laughs> and um, and and it was just it was incredible to be sitting with, again, this this incredible titan of business, this man who was changing, really was changing the world. And he's sitting there asking my opinion on things. You know, it was a real incredible moment. Yeah, it is.
0: I tell you what. Um, like kind only now I'm, I'm I'm thinking that this was when you were in your early twenties. I think you suggested. Yes, uh, I wonder. Given not only did you have exposure to such a fantastic, uh, fantastically successful builder of brands, and you were you were so involved in one of the most reference, amazingly effective campaigns of all time, and yet at some point in your career you decided to. You decided to move sides and go client side, whereas your, your version of agency side must have just been like beyond most people's experience at, at that age. So I will get onto that. But before I ask you about moving client side, how did you initially find your role as an account manager? The, the reason I ask that is we've had so many guests in the past. And I think I've joked that account management is almost like the kind of gateway drug into agency land because so many people typically start there. And in, in certainly, when it comes to previous guests of call to action, many people realize they're a different shaped person to the one that needs to, it needs to be to succeed in that role, and they, they they end up going and becoming planners or strategists or even into creative departments. But did it did it feel really good to you when you first started that role, or did you kind of explore other roles within the agency?
1: No, look, do you know what? No, it felt really good for me. I uh, it was a great fit, and I really loved my time in account management um, in in agency land, and I worked at some really great agencies over the years, whether it was Shite Day there, um, BBH in Singapore, um, you know, my time at Publicist Mojo um, or Campaign Palace here in Sydney, you know, highly creative agencies, um, you know, work hard, you know, often work hard, play hard, you know, but, you know, it's all about the work and and driving results. I've never fancied myself a planner, although I've always, you know, I've had great respect, I guess, for that skill set and for the people that um, excel at that. Definitely never fancied myself a creative, but um, like to think of myself as a creative enabler, someone who helps make all of that happen. And look, there's probably something that goes back to my, that early job working in the, at the retirement home, having conversations with lots of different people, trying to learn new things and, and um, absorb as much as I, as I can. And I think that probably, you know, is why I'm set, I was set up for success, I guess, in the account management role. But no, I never really, I never really looked at other jobs wishing that I was doing those. Um, I just enjoyed learning a little bit about each part of the business and um, helping really uh, move the move the work, move the relationship with the client forward to hopefully the best results I could.
0: yeah and I mean there's no reason also I should stress why you should think you needed to look at look at other roles. I think most people consistently agree that a great account manager or client partner, however you know whatever label you give to those, um, amazing people is, is worth their weight in gold absolutely I mean, they, re- they really are they're
1: priceless and and don't get me wrong it's hard yakka for sure it's 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 definitely hard work you know but yeah just incredibly it's still incredibly rewarding and i think it it has set me up for success on the client side because you know you have to be a bit more of a generalist at, at, as you get more senior as a client you know you need and you need that skill set of being able to to learn from different departments or learn from different industries and be able to apply it broadly yeah,
0: well said. And do you think, I, I, I appreciate it might feel like I'm spoon feeding you the answer I want to hear now, which I don't mean to, but do you think your time agency side did give you that kind of understand, understanding that, oh, that absolutely. you said you called yourself an, an enabler of, of, of creativity? Oh. Do you think that's something that you took into client side that perhaps is less common or is that an unfair yeah. kind of No, 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 no,
1: no, 100%. And, and, you know, I've talked about that often that, that um, having that agency grounding. Well, look, it brings a few things. One, I think agency people are incredibly hardworking. Um, we're resourceful. I think agency people are entrepreneurial. You know, we we look to solve problems um, as well as being, you know, creative and, and very outcome driven. Uh, and I think all of those things set me up for great, yeah, for success when I moved client side, not least of which because I could understand, I could code switch between um, you know, working with agencies all over different types of agencies, be it creative, media, digital, or whatever. Uh, and then the uh, and I learned, you know, the language of, of the more corporate world of the client side world. You know, and I think I carved a niche out for myself um, in my client side jobs by being able to do that and by being able to um, to to get good work through and be able to explain. And I think, you know, probably do it. You know, some sometimes, you know, depending on your on the business. You know that the client is in you it can be you can have a degree of cynicism sometimes about marketing you know within sort of executive suites or within the broader business and by having somebody internally you know who can explain um the process who can demystify the approach or decode the creative in a way that is more relevant or more clear in that environment can can really help and also just building the relationships with our agencies i, I you know i greatly value how we work with agencies. I've got a team that's pretty well staffed with ex-agency people as well um and I think that we end up I like to think we end up getting, you know, better work and we all work harder together um towards a really a shared ambition for the type of um advertising that we want to produce.
0: Um I was going to say for for kind of balance what what you find more commonly client side than agency side because I did you know as I said spoon feed you the 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 idea that perhaps creativity is one that came from agency side you did touch on a few there and and you use words like there's, there's a kind of natural cynicism I personally don't think that's um I think it's fair that there's a natural cynicism and I almost think that lots of agencies although of course not all have kind of allowed themselves to be seen as a you know a bit fluffy at times or you know for want of a better word Um, And I think that I have certainly noticed in our time of running gas for 14 years, the significance of speaking the right language, um, you know, in the right boardrooms and executive Mm -hmm. corridors and understanding the value of um, creativity. Is it fair to say that client side, there's also a greater understanding of market orientation?
1: Yes, I think so. But I also think that's changing. I think with the like, of Marketing Week's Mini MBA with Mark Ritson, with things like, you know, sections, training programs, all that sort of stuff. I think there's a much greater ability and um, awareness, I guess, of of, um, what clients go through um, to drive commercial outcomes um, and that uh, it is creativity in service uh, of commercial outcomes, you know, creativity in service of, you know, the business. Um, but yeah, look, I think I I think that's a, there's always a risk of that. Certainly, you know, when you're putting um, you know really talented creative minds uh, to work, that maybe that they can um, get caught up in an idea. But again, with great great strategy people, great account people, and collaborating with a, with a good client, I think that harnessing that energy, um, you know, is is that's where the magic happens. You know, and I, look, I I appreciate the you know your point around the cynicism that Ken or my point earlier about the cynicism that you can sometimes encounter uh you know within the halls at, at a uh at a client office but um at, and i think that's sometimes a bit of the healthy debate isn't it you know that, yes yeah. you know maybe you know we can ask we can ask the tougher um you know harder edge questions and um you know the agency can can help us aspire and um you know to to reach for greater heights and do more and be more creative and stand out more i think that healthy tension between um those two partners is really really important
0: yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, it's more up to the the person um, fielding that that question, right, or fielding that cynicism, and being able to to convince that there is value and logic behind what they're presenting. I um I gave a talk a couple of nights ago to a university, and I was talking about that that precise conversation. I think that conversation is certainly or seemingly easier to have nowadays because there is so much empirical data available to us, and you could point towards. Certainly, um, I think Mark Richardson deserves a, a, another name drop, but also the likes of Ehrenberg Bass and the LinkedIn B two B Institute, and you know Benetton and Field, wherever you are. And and I think that understanding of what Mark would call bothism, or long and short, or you know future demand or future sales, and whatever it is, is becoming much easier to kind of explain. Yes. To allow creativity to to flourish. But look, that's something that you certainly managed recently with your. G'day campaign. Uh,
1: yes, thank I, you.
0: I appreciate that you've spoken about this at length, so I don't need you to kind of revisit it in you know any significant capacity. But what was it like? What What was the? I think people don't necessarily understand or might not think about the real context of what you were doing with that campaign, because not only had the pandemic just completely knocked out the Devastated. tourism industry of sorts,
1: absolutely. Yes,
0: but also you you had that period, and I say this um, as you now know of someone who has lots of family in Australia. There was there's not only the fact that the pandemic affected tourism. There's also what we know from the likes of people I was mentioning before Bennett and Field, etc. That you need to refresh people's memories. Yes, it's not just a case yeah. of you, you don't need, you don't stop advertising it just because people aren't able to travel or able to to. Purchase. That's right. So, so, yeah. Can you explain a bit more about the context and how you ended up with the campaign that, that, that you did? Because it was a brilliant campaign and it was so effective and, and oh, Thank
1: off. you. Thank you. I appreciate your your very kind words. But well, look, what I'd say, if it's funny, people often say to me, they said to me during the pandemic or just after, like, geez, things must have been quiet for you during that period. And can I tell you, I have never worked so hard in my entire life as I did through those few years of the pandemic, you know? And, and you have to remember that we, um, well, well, firstly, we you know going uh, going into the, the pandemic, just before the pandemic, rather, we had the bushfires in Australia. Of course, which were, were also devastating at the time, um, and the perception around the world uh, was that you know so much of Australia, that the eastern seaboard plus was was really on fire and, and uh, in ashes, and it, it really wasn't. So we were working hard to combat that image around the world. And don't get me wrong, it, the the bushfires were were awful and devastating. Um, and we're still recovering, in, you know, parts of um, uh, of the country from that. So I don't want to minimize, I suppose, what happened, but I also just need to look at it in the larger context. You know, we we were having people canceling flights to come to Australia because, the, again, the perception was that it was much worse and much wider spread than it had been. So you know, and we had just launched our our campaign in the UK with Kylie Minogue, you know, with the uh, mate song, you know, that we had spent such a long time um, preparing, and you know, we were ready to welcome. Brits back to Australia in a post-Brexit world remind the UK that we you know that you've got this you know cousin down under uh, who still loves you and wanted to, to welcome you so you know we had we had come off a long period working on that we we leaned into um, trying to drive domestic tourism um, during the bushfires and trying to rebuild international tourism and then the pan- pandemic took off um, and then the in within the pandemic at first it was the international borders closing and we weren't able to welcome anybody um, to our shores and then. We started having our state border closures within the country as well, you know, which meant that our domestic tourism industry then was, um, you know, was, was uh, devastated even further. Um, so we pivoted at that time to uh, focus on domestic advertising, trying to encourage Australians to travel here within our borders the same way they do overseas. And there's just a real truism that the further that you go in your holiday the more special it is. So if you go for a weekend away, you probably don't spend that much money, you know, and you probably just stay at an Airbnb or a little little hotel and you maybe don't do any experiences and maybe you don't go out to eat. But then compare that to a European holiday or for you, a holiday in America, say you are going to invest in a better hotel. You're going to invest in a tour of, I don't know, Yankee Stadium or something. I don't know. You're going to go for special experiences that, you know, book that nice restaurant in New York. And that's what we needed Australians to do, you know, to go further um, stay longer, do more experiences, spend more. Um, so we focused, we focused on that. We spun one team up, um, to focus on our domestic activity. We, we had a campaign running called, um, holiday here this year, and it was all about, um, getting out and enjoying your own backyard and supporting the industry, um, which was really successful. We actually won, uh, we got a silver, silver Effie for that, which is the only Effie, uh, awarded in tourism, uh, and travel in Australia. And I think over a two or three year period. So I'm very proud of that. But behind the scenes, one, we were still developing content to run in our markets around the world to keep Australia as top of mind as we could to keep them engaged. Um, we, we ran a live streaming 48-hour um, uh, um, event, coast to coast, live streaming tourism experiences and other content called Live from Oz. Again, just to um, keep the focus on our operators and the Australian lifestyle and all the wonderful aspirational um, pieces that the, the world knows and loves. Um, we were developing 8D audio um, films to put out for people to experience a little bit of Australia from their from their homes, um, and amongst other things, you know, we're continuing social media marketing, etc. We just knew that we couldn't go dark. We couldn't risk. We didn't know how long it was going to go for, and we couldn't risk completely falling off the map, so to speak. Um, and then at the same time, though. Um, we wanted to make sure that we set ourselves up for success in developing our brand campaign that would, you know, eventually we knew the borders would open and we knew that we needed to understand our consumers better than we ever did before. So we took undertook a whole raft of research and analysis um, that was really, that I think is pretty unprecedented in the travel, uh, or in the tourism category rather. Um, you know, we sort of borrowed frameworks and approaches from other categories, you know? So we did um, full funnel analysis for ourselves in each of our markets and for our competitors. You know, we looked at drivers of demand, again, across each of our our countries, um, or excuse me, each of our markets. We looked, we did our brand code research in in each of our markets as well. So what are those um, shortcuts and the shorthands for Australia that we could tap into to ensure that when, once we go back to market, people recognize our communications. Because one of the challenges in destination marketing is is that sea of sameness and misattribution is so so easy when people are just substituting what you know. There's a beach in this ad, or there's food and why or that you know the the montage approach to storytelling and travel and tourism is really rife. So we wanted to make sure that that once we go back and and launch that we are uh, distinctly and uniquely Australian. But we also went you know we were mindful that we had been shut for two years. Um, and, you know, we wanted to make sure that we had a a, a proposition and ultimately an execution that that brought that um, brought the warm and welcoming nature of Australians to the fore, you know. Um, and we, we actually looked backwards. We looked at the old Paul Hogan campaign from the 80s, you know, the yes. come and say good day campaign, you know, the shrimp of the barbie for America. <laughs> um, but that line, you know, he used that line in it, you know, inviting Americans to come down and say good day. And it's just it's such a wonderfully warm charming Australian line, um, that we, we knew that we could breathe new life into that in a new way. And there's so much other, so many other parts of the research and so much other work that we did. Like we started looking at how do we, how do we, um, uh, aim for attentive reach in our media planning. So how do we, you know, stop using less effective, um, channels where people aren't engaging with our, um, uh, with our content, you know, uh, we were doing, um, white space analysis to understand what are the uh, opportunities for us to stand out versus our competition? What are the experiences that we're famous for versus the things that we have an opportunity to build, et cetera. So a whole raft of work that went into, to um, uh, of inputs, I guess, into the development of this new campaign. So I'd like to say I'm as proud of the smarts behind this campaign as I am of the creative and the results um, that we're now seeing.
0: Yeah, you, you really should
1: be. And I'm, I think I'm saying this
0: on behalf of everyone listening. that. There's so many things in what you just said which I've scribbled down to highlight here. So not only was Yeah, sorry, you know,
1: the, I hope it wasn't too rambly there. No, I like, <laughs> no,
0: no, no, not at all, not at all. It was um, the ratio of smarts to time was high. The the fact you talked <laughs> about needing to research because, of course, your your kind of consumers, your target segments, their attitudes had changed significantly. So the fact you even did that, I think, is significant. Although to you, you'll think that's you know obvious because it, you know, we. I wish it was obvious. You talked about you know, the brand codes and the fact that they're kind of shortcuts in people's minds, which again is just such a Bear. great point that we often try and make ourselves, but you did it so well, so well articulated. And and just your appreciation of use of brand codes, whether that's in language and, and day being so such a nice, warm, affectionate, simple four-letter word and everything about what came out of the campaign was exactly and to use your words distinctly and uniquely australian is just is perfect and one of my pet hates in in this uh industry is the amount of subjectivity in people's responses to advertising and it's not to say i don't think consumers have a right to subjectively like a campaign or not because you know there's lots of there's lots of logic about liking something that then helps something become famous and of course fame is a you know is a significant thing and an objective to aim for in its own right. But it's more the fact that everything about this shows that it's work that works. And we know the campaign worked. And I think there were people in the industry who didn't receive the campaign particularly warmly, who completely missed the market orientation points and completely missed the fact that those yeah. are the codes that were working, and you needed to have something that was wasn't going to be confused for any other destination. Like it just worked so well.
1: Yeah, look, I think there was a little bit of confusion early on because we did a bit of a soft launch in Japan a week before we did a week, no, maybe ten days before we did the full. Um, campaign launch and the short film launch um, in the U.S. and New York. So, you know, we, cut, we wanted a balanced approach to, you know, we, we wanted to have an event um, in Asia as well as an event in one of our Western markets. Um, J- Japan was a key market, you know, in, in our reopening. Um, we used that as an opportunity to launch the character, announce our partnership with, um, with, uh, with Rose Byrne, uh, we talked about the Japanese talent that we were using to voice the character as well, uh, Mary Mary June Takahashi, um, and, and there were I think there were there were a few not as not that many but there were a few probably vocal um, marketing industry people here that maybe missed the point that that wasn't the entire campaign. It was always of course it was always going to be more um, than just a kangaroo knocking on a, a window of a of a billboard. Um, and I think once the whole full campaign revealed itself, people understood um, really well the, the the length of the uh, the breadth I guess of the, of the story and the narrative. But you know what like it's it's easy. I think you know there's high interest within Australia um, around um, how we portray the country, you know um, um, you know we've got 27 million stakeholders here, uh, you know the population of Australia certainly yeah. and uh, we've got a we've got a very um, very uh, active, Marketing media, marketing press down here, uh, and it's just something that we have to roll with. It's important that we keep our eyes on the prize, which is you know getting our international visitors back here to Australia. And look, between you and me, um, we did when we did our testing between you and me and your listeners, by the way. Um, but when we when we did our testing internationally, which um, I've spoken before, we do we use System One testing, and it it helps us greatly to understand how we're connecting. It it lets us talk to you know, consumers at scale in market and understand how they're receiving it. So we researched it and I can't remember 10 or 11 markets or so. Um, But I did test it in Australia as well. I wanted to understand how um, everyday Australians responded to it, not just how, you know, say marketing media or, um, you know, breakfast TV might respond to it. And it scored as high in Australia as it did in our other markets. Um, So that gives me real confidence. And also when I saw Australians comments on social media uh, about the ad uh it, it you know i knew that we were on to a winner and i knew that we landed it you know regardless of you know a few um uh you know loud pundits um and what i would also say is you know here we are nearly one year on since launch and we have um tested the ad again i put it back into system one and we're still getting fours and five stars so i'm confident in the idea i'm confident uh, in Ruby and come and say good day uh, as a creative platform, as a message to the world to welcome people back. Um, and we, in, and in fact, we also did an execution for um, the world for the women's world cup as well. So we, we took Ruby and uh, her statue emu uh, character as well. And we made them sportscasters uh, doing voiceover to our, you know, giving um, uh, highlights uh, holiday highlights uh, in the, in the same vein as you would uh, match highlight. Uh, and it, was fantastic. It was viewed about 70 million times in our key markets um, and the reception to it was, was really strong. Amazing. So we're, we're really happy with the direction that we're going. And, you know, we we do aim for, these, for the assets to be able to run. Uh, you know, we built the business case around it for it to run, you know, for two to three years. We'll still be doing those creative extensions like we did for the Women's World Cup when we launched in China in June, because, of course, they opened um, later than um, the rest of the world. Uh, we did some custom, customized animation specifically uh, for China. You know, we had sort of hand gestures like heart hands and heart fingers and stuff like that, you know, which is really important for us to, to take something that, um, uh, yes, it's global, but we are able to take it and customize it, you know, in key markets and make it feel relevant, show a little bit of respect to the local market and the local um, uh, consumers as well. Um, that was really an, an important part of the of the campaign as well.
0: And in case you were too modest to say, your ad actually tested in or scored in the top 0.1 of ad creative with System One.
1: Mm, indeed, it really did. Yeah, and we're still up there. And I'm super proud of that. And actually, general, I me tell you something else that we've done is is understanding how this the how the campaign works against other segments as well. So we've just undertaken some testing in the U.S. With consumers, um, 350,000 USD plus a year, so quite high, quite high income. Um, Took us a while to find them and get them (laughs) to participate. (laughs) Of course, but but you know, to be honest, the score, the the um, it was that was 5.9 stars, and our brand fluency was even higher. You know, so I'm extremely confident that a campaign that we developed to run broadcast. You know, for what we talk about, our our high yielding audience, it's not necessarily ultra high net worth, but it's a high yielding um, audience who prioritize travel as they come down and spend uh, more than than other travelers. Um, You know, yes, the original testing showed it worked well with them. But the fact that we can now test it still one year later against, you know, very high income Americans and it's testing even better. Again, it just gives me great confidence in the direction that we've gone.
0: Yeah, I think people are too um, eager to talk about wear out, but this is still wearing in by the sounds of it, which is wonderful
1: a hundred yeah 100% you know and and again the importance of being distinctly australian and you know look we we made sure that we layered in the right brand codes but i i like to think i hope anyway that we also kept enough room for for um for the magic of the storytelling so that it would be engaging and entertaining across the breadth of the campaign um uh as well uh and i just i think you know ch- the more chapters that we can build with this hopefully these characters will continue to evolve and um, you know, people will get to know them and we'll see different sides of them and have fun. Um, you know, in the way that you have, we've seen with say the M&M ms over yes. the years or yeah, you know, yeah. the Geico Geckos over the years, you know, or, you know, the Energizer, um, you know, bunny, you know, lives for a long time. You know, I'm sure that, that, you know, it's a, there, there's so much opportunity, um, and growth that we can still squeeze from this.
0: Well, another line I've pulled out from you in our research is you said, we don't have enough budget to be boring. So I think, you know, you've achieved exactly that. And I think if Paul Feldwick's listening, he'll certainly, they'll certainly give him a grin to hear that.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, we just are not one of those brands that can throw money at a, at a, at a mediocre execution. You know, we, we have to make sure that we are, we're standing out. And the other thing is we, we really have to squeeze every ounce of messaging or PR opportunity that we can out of every idea and that's why when you talk about this campaign being layered like we really thought through everything so you know so the role you know with the animation you know um uh, or or the director who we chose to help us tell the story was Michael Gracie who was the director of The Greatest Showman Um, he's this incredible director started his career in animation and special effects became a commercial director very very successful commercial director became a feature director with The Greatest Showman and did an amazing job with that. And we were lucky to get him after that to come help us tell our story and do our short film. You know, the the uh, animator that he brought on to design the characters um, also designed um, Peter Rabbit, you know, the choice to um, use Down Under. So that iconic Men at Work track, you know, and we debated a lot whether we use the original one that everyone knows or do we reinterpret in the end, we went for a reinterpretation because we we felt a fresh take on it was important, but this young up-and-coming band, King Stingray, who's just having a bit of a moment themselves, you know, that was a whole other direction for us to talk about great Indigenous music and Indigenous storytelling, for example. Anyway, I could keep going on about, you know, as you said, the language with G'day. You know, we built all these things in, but I'm hoping that it feels more charming and more composed um, than heavy-handed, um, and and I'm hoping that it just continues to you know, give us great creative, or lay a great creative groundwork for the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never
0: interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards at giles at gasp Only the other day some pod listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and brand identity. But we're definitely not asking you to do that. Anyway... Back to the show. My first sort of proper paid weekly job was a holiday job as a student, uh, which was driving a forklift truck at the Ribena factory in Culford, Gloucestershire. Ah, call to action, episode 11, with the one and only Rory Sutherland. Not what we were looking for, but hang on a minute. Um, I'm mindful ah, that go. it's your Friday evening where you are, so um, and I <laughs> promise not to keep you too long, so... I'm going to move to listener questions, also in part because they both kind of nod to this campaign. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. Um, I'm going to put two to you, Susan, starting with Jenny. This is a great question. Jenny asks, is marketing orientation easier or harder given your largest customer segment Presumably resides outside of Australia, leaving you physically so far away from them already.
1: Mm. I would say that um, the look the 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 principles of market orientation um, are a hundred percent the same. But yes, you have to multiply that times fifteen markets. And the challenge for us, however, is to um, understand the nuance between markets, but also not let us fall into the trap of saying. but we're different all but we're different like i'm i'm constantly encouraging us to have a really balanced conversation with our team in sydney but our teams in market as well to know when a when a difference is meaningful or a difference is trivial and kind of understand where we can find commonalities across markets and look this applies to so much whether it's the media development whether it's the tone of what we create sorry not media development media strategy development (laughs) whether it's the tone of the creative you know whether it's down to the casting you know whether it's down to you know we've just announced a partnership with um dylan alcott down here in australia m- with a, a load load of other um, iconic australian brands as well to increase the representation uh, of people of, of all different types of disabilities or other able people you know and how do we re- how does that how is that represented in our marketing around the world as well and we've, we've got to take input and direction on how we best do that so Sorry, again, I'm getting a bit of a broad answer here. But what I would say is is the foundation, the principles of market orientation remain the same and they are so incredibly important. And I think you live and die by them. Um, but doing it across 13 markets, is sure, it increases the volume, but I don't know that it incre- increases complexity necessarily.
0: Yeah, great answer. I like the fact you talk about finding commonality as well. Uh, if Samuel Brealey's listening, he'll love that. He talks about that all the time. It's really smart, really smart. So we're a- all
1: special. We truly are. I said to all my countries, you're all special. You truly are. But equally, we're, you know, there's a lot that we share. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, it's just sensible. There's an efficiency when it comes to thinking as well about that. Otherwise, you can force segments, can't you? Far too easily. And actually, exactly. just, it doesn't make anyone's life any yeah. easier.
1: Yeah. And in fact, our core segment, High Yielding Travelers, you know, there's a lot of universality a- around them, to be honest. You know, again, they they prioritize travel. Um, they tend to come down and stay for longer. They, they, you know, live for experiences, et cetera. And that's true across all markets.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well said. Um, the second question is from Steve. We've kind of touched on this already, but um, Steve asks, were the initial negative responses to the G'day campaign tricky to navigate within your organization, despite them being the minority and <laughs> largely, if not entirely, irrelevant?
1: Um no I, I mean no i mean look no nobody likes negative comments you know i'm 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 i get wounded of course by uh, any comment <laughs> but um do you know what we had done so much work on this we 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 really you knew it was right we're confident we knew it was right we had spoken to so many people i mean look before we launched the campaign i did probably about two months worth of stakeholder management and outreach you know we went you know flew around to most of our states we held um briefings with industry operators um uh you know leaders of our industry we got their input we understood what was working for them um you know they each of those meetings to be honest just made me more and more confident because of the support that we got people understood them the number one question after i finished my presentation was are you going to make ruby and are you going to sell her and can we sell her (laughs) you know Uh, you you know (laughs) yeah we're not selling ruby but um (laughs) but yeah look it, it yeah, look, negative comments are always painful to hear, but we were super confident. And We also knew that once the larger campaign would roll out that any and all questions would be answered. Um, and look, you, I guess you just kind of have to back yourself, you know. And look, there's, there's no doubt also that, you know, as a national tourism body, you know, again, as I said, 27 million stakeholders, a lot of scrutiny that we're under, I guess. And we've got our government stakeholders, we answered, you know, to our industry, we try and deliver for our industry. Um, everybody wants to see us uh do well. And I just had to uh trust that we were moving in the right direction. And, you know, time has shown that we have. Yeah, we have been.
0: Brilliant. There's a there's a great quote actually from from Mark Ritson that he wrote an article in in kind of defense of the campaign uh to those minority. And there's a line here. Where is it? Proper marketers pointed out that those who live in Australia weren't the market for an ad about a trip to Australia, that they should therefore practice the most venerated of marketing moves: shutting the fuck up and being market orientated. That's my last words, not yours, but <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I applaud yeah, exactly. him for, for saying that because it's it's so true, and I love the fact you talked about you know having confidence in it because you've done you've yeah. clearly done so much of the work and so much of the diagnosis had been done. So it wasn't a yes. case of liking, and it and anyway, liking. Yeah. If you you know, if you try and do something that everyone likes, you're going to end up with some form of beige, aren't you? And that's not going to move the dial at all.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And again, look, I also I also had the scores in my back pocket. I I knew how you know through through our testing, we had spoken to thousands of thousands of of consumers, and I had I also knew what everyday Australians thought of it. So sure, there's always going to be a vocal minority people who you know. Uh, have knee-jerk reactions. Uh, look, I, I think as an industry, we would do better at, at uh, being, I think, probably more supportive and, and more constructive in building, um, you know, but to, at the end of the day, I think the work and the results are, are speaking for itself. Yeah, for totally, itself.
0: totally. I, funny enough, I was talking to John Evans yesterday of System 1, and we were talking about the, there's a there's a campaign here for the Great British Bake Off that's, that's just um, started to run and um it's wonderful and it's i know it's scoring very highly um something that they're openly sharing at system one and i made the point that i heard somebody outside of the ad industry talking about the ad the other day and i just said to him that's just imagine that right imagine that that should be our metric we shouldn't be worried about yeah absolutely
1: a hundred percent and look for me i think that that sort of like are you moving culture that is something that i got a taste of again very early in my career working on Working on Apple, you know, um, or, you know, I worked for a time at Qantas Airlines here, uh, you know, working on the Feels Like Home campaign and watching people's response here in Australia to that, their response at the time, you know, to the the, um, kangaroo on the red tail of the plane um, was so highly emotive. um, And they're continuing to run that campaign or variations on that campaign, you know, they have for the last 10 years or so. and. It feels really good, you know, and that's when you know that you've made a difference. That's when you know you've kind of permeated the, you know, the, the real world, I guess. Yeah,
0: totally, totally. Well, you know, testament to to Apple, um, who obviously we touched on more earlier, that the quick, the first quick fire question for most guests is Mac or PC. <laughs> that, that's so, it's so ingrained that. in our culture. I didn't ask you that because I felt, it, you know, as an ex-soccer player, it was a bit of a tap-in for you. So I uh <laughs> I <that> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> <And I'm,
0: laughs> Hey Susan the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests number one is what advice would you give to your younger self
1: um, the advice I would give my younger self uh, is to back yourself earlier I think I underestimated myself I didn't put myself forward at times for promotions I even for the job that I'm in now um you know when when the former CMO left my first reaction was, oh, God, someone's going to come in and want, to, want their own person. Am I, are they going to keep me? You know. And it wasn't until I sat down with, with my then um, CEO uh, at the time who said, Ashley, are you going to throw your hat in the ring? And I just looked at him and I went, would you consider me? And I still remember his response because it's very classic uh, John O'Sullivan. He said, oh, shit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I was so taken aback. <laughs> I still had to go back. I still had to go back and... Um, uh, think about it for a couple of weeks. And, and I'm thought, well, look, even if I am the underdog, I appreciate that he's saying that I've got to at least try, you know, and I kind of went from thinking, I I used to say, "I'm no, I don't need to be best leading actress. I'm happy to be best supporting actress and be amazing at that and really drive that. I don't need to be, you know, the one winning the, uh, the Oscar statue, uh, you know, as a metaphor. And then I, I, I realized actually, no, I can do this. I've been doing so much of this for so long anyway. And I just, I wish I had had that spirit in myself that belief in myself maybe a little bit earlier so um, that's what I would say to any young person out there you know believe in yourself back yourself put yourself out there and invest in yourself um, to become what you know you should be awesome awesome advice you
0: can awesome advice uh, number two if you could banish one thing from the industry what would it be in why
1: I would uh, I would banish um, un um, anonymous comments in our uh, in our industry uh, trade websites. I think that people should be standing behind their comments. Um, I mean, this makes me sound like I'm incredibly sensitive to negative comments. I don't want to overplay that necessarily, but I really, I want to encourage more constructive um, and supportive um, uh, dialogue and debate in our industry because I think, you know, we all know that um, people, be it creatives or other agency people or clients, you put a little bit of your heart and soul into every project, and we should be trying to encourage people um, to do more, do better, take risks. I mean, I think sometimes also that, that, um, people underestimate, um, that the impact of that negativity can have on, you know, uh, the wider industry or, or businesses that it can make them more scared to take risks and do the creative things that the very industry want them to do. So I, I, I would say, you know, it, it's absolutely fine to, to, um, uh, to criticize, um, Let's do it in a constructive and um, uh, you know, out in the open sort of way. So I say no more anonymous comments.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, if that makes you sensitive, I you know, I just hope everyone is sensitive then because I don't think that does at all. I think that's just such a it's su- it's such a good answer. It's probably one of the best answers we've ever had, Susan, because oh, gosh, there are so you. many anonymous <laughs> comments out there, and they and they carry with them a real weight that actually does does harm, does affect people. And as you say, whether it's just yeah. removing their confidence to take a risk next in their next you know, campaign, it, it also hurts on a personal level and, and, it, and it's quite rife.
1: I've heard of people leaving the industry because of it, you know, and he could say on one hand, well, they should toughen up. It's a tough industry, but, or you could say, really, is that the best we can do? You know, like there's, there's, you know, talent and, you know, wonderful creativity in each of us. We should be finding a way to pull that out. Uh, number three,
0: are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners
1: Yes, I'm currently reading a book. I actually saw this gentleman speak in Cannes at a, uh, it was a LinkedIn sort of Q&A, and his name is Will, and I'm t- I'm not quite sure how to um, uh, say his last name, Gar- Guardia, Guardia, Will Guardia. It's a book called Unreasonable Hospitality, and it is, he. so he was a restaurateur behind Eleven Madison Park. Yes. The, the uh, number one restaurant in the world for many, many years, and he came to that business as uh, a restaurateur versus a chef and all the restaurants that were winning um, best restaurant in the world were all very celebrity chef driven or, or incredible chef driven. Um, and this is his story around how he centered his entire business around providing not only amazing food, um, but an incredible experience and hospitality like no other. And what a gift it is to be able to um, bestow hospitality on people. And it's just, it's uh It's relevant to, I think, absolutely any business. It's certainly relevant to the agency world, you know, which is very much a service business um, for its clients. Um, But he just tells a really wonderful story. And um, I think there's a lot of inspiration to be found in that book. So, unreasonable hospitality.
0: Amazing. Um, And do you read much outside of, um, you know, kind of work related?
1: I have a tendency to overread in work I hate to say it I'm I really do. embarrassed I can't think of the last novel I read and that's super embarrassing <laughs> I, I, well
0: you know I, I don't think it's embarrassing I, I mean I'm, I'm the same <laughs> well, maybe I yeah. am embarrassed actually I feel like I should be my wife is a prolific <laughs> reader um yes and I, oh you
1: know those people that read a book a week you know stuff like that oh my god I don't know how they do yeah. it I wish I could do it she's one of them
0: <laughs> she's one of them. okay I don't think that book's come up before actually so that's a, that's a good one so that link will be in the show notes and number four then, Susan, is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honor, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why.
1: Do you know, I would dedicate this episode to a woman named Marianne Bess, who was my boss back in the day at Team One, um, my, she, a boss and mentor. Uh, and she's seen me grow from being, you know, a little account coordinator, assistant account executive um, you know, through my career moving overseas, um, she's been a constant source of, of, you know, inspiration and guidance. Uh, we, we, uh, met up again in person. So we knew each other in Los Angeles. Um, I moved from LA to Singapore, then to Sydney. She was in Sydney at that time. Um, I think she was working at Saatchi and Saatchi, uh, at that time. Um, and, you know, she, uh, was such a model for me for becoming, she was probably the best account person you could ever meet, by the way, an incredible role model. Um, uh, an incredible friend over the years uh, and she's going through a bit of a rough patch herself and um, I, I would dedicate this to her to let her know how much she has meant to me um, and uh, to thank her for everything.
0: Amazing. That's a great dedication. Fantastic. So this episode is very, very happily dedicated to, to Marianne Bess. Perfect.
1: Two S's, Marianne Bess. <laughs>
0: Marianne Bess. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Susan. Oh, thank you, John. Uh, so as a final call to action, uh, everything we've discussed, including the campaigns and the previous campaigns that we didn't really get the opportunity to dig into uh, today will be linked to in the show notes as well as unreasonable hospitality. How else can our listeners get more Susan Coghill?
1: <laughs> Assuming they want more Susan Coghill, they can follow me obviously on LinkedIn. I'm not I'm not really on Twitter. um, And I I usually leave my my socials pretty private, but definitely LinkedIn. Uh, I do a fair amount of talking here in Australia at um, industry events here. I will be in London for the Festival of Marketing. Um, I'm doing um, a fireside chat with Mark Ritson. Um, So if you happen to be in town and going to the conference, look me up and please um, come hear our chat. Well, thank you
0: so much for joining us, Susan, and thank you for finding the time across time zones. I know that's um, easier said than done. Oh, my pleasure, Giles. I've I've really, really enjoyed this.
1: Yes, thank you so so much for having me. And uh, finally, thank
0: you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online. Or email of the mouthful that is call to action at gasp. Agency.
1: I can't get no
0: call to action, I can't get no call to action, but I try. I try, and I try,
1: and I try.